If you uh, have a Bible with you, if you don't, that's fine. If you would like one, there's some up the back. I'd have you turn with me, if you would, please, to the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So the New Testament, if you need some help finding, just uh, ask someone next to you there. And we're going to turn to chapter 3. And verse 16, which some of you may already know well off the top of your head, from by heart, off by memory. But I think it's important that we turn, if you're able, to look at it to make sure that what I'm telling you is true from the Bible. John chapter 3 and verse 16. Let me read this to us. And then we'll look at some specifics. John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son... That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Easter is one of those occasions on the calendar that is celebrated in vastly different ways all around the world. I always find it interesting being a a student type person to study out those different ways that uh, festivities and celebrations are had around the world. And uh, in my research this week, I found some humorous and some concerning concepts from the worldwide celebration of Easter. In Hungary, there is a popular tradition on Easter Monday called sprinkling. The young men and boys sprinkle perfume, cologne or water on a young woman's head and ask for a kiss. It was believed that the water had a cleaning, healing and fertility inducing effect. We won't do that today. In France, a giant omelette is made using 4,500 eggs that feeds approximately 1,000 people. This tradition dates back to the time when Napoleon and his army travelled through the south of France They stopped at a small town and ate omelettes. Napoleon so liked the omelette that he ordered the townspeople to make a giant omelette for his army the next day. And so the tradition continues. In Brazil, little straw dolls are made to represent Judas Iscariot and are hung from the trees in the streets. In more recent days, however, these dolls have been made in the likeness of the politicians who have been involved in scandalous activities. So they've changed that slightly. In Sweden, children dress up as witches and wizards wearing long skirts and gowns, colourful headscarves and painted red cheeks. They go from house to house in their neighbourhoods trading paintings and pictures in the hope of receiving treats. This tradition is a lot like what we would call Halloween in our country. In Greece, I thought this was interesting. In Greece, there is a tradition in some parts of what is called pot throwing. On Holy Saturday... People throw pots and pans and other earthenware out of their windows to symbolise new life. Every year there are reports of unsuspecting people walking through the streets who are hit by a flying pot or pan. (laughs) Truly there are. I looked it up. Every year. In Bulgaria, the oldest woman in a family gathers all the young children around her and breaks an egg on their heads and then rubs it into their face in the hope that they will gain rosy cheeks, which is a symbol of health, Life and vitality. Thought we could do that after the service as well. (laughs) Other parts of Bulgaria do not hide their eggs. They have egg fights. And whoever finishes the game with an unbroken egg is considered the winner. 
and assumed to be the most successful member of the family for the ensuing year. We're not talking about Easter eggs, we're talking about eggs. In Colombia, I'm glad we're not in Colombia. In Colombia, instead of tucking into chocolate eggs, the people like to eat iguana, turtle and the world's largest rodent for their traditional Easter dinner. Colombians travel for hours on intercity buses to spend the holiday with family and prepare special meals, bringing exotic animals from far-flung provinces to their relatives in big cities. Among the unusual seasonal treats are turtle egg omelettes, iguana soup, caiman stew, fried yucca and capybara, the world's biggest rodent. Having researched this list of customs and rituals, I am particularly thankful this Sunday that we live in Australia, our laid-back culture. However, even today, at this very hour, activities are taking place as we speak across the road and Easter fair begins. Easter mass services, carnivals, Easter egg hunts, family gatherings and many different church services and religious activities. With so many different customs, messages, celebrations and activities... I decided that today the simplest and most pointed discussion for the message today is simply called the greatest truth in all the world. I can't think of a better subject to deal with than the greatest truth in all the world and probably the greatest text known by the world. Heavenly Father, as I seek to open your word and teach from it a simple message I pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear the truth of the gospel. Lord, there may be those in our midst today who uh, so much of this is foreign. uh, But, Lord, I pray that uh, today they would understand who the Lord Jesus really is. Uh, Lord, uh, if we lose all of uh, the religious ritualism that we see today uh, and all the other things that hinder the truth of the gospel, I pray that today we would see uh, the truth clearly revealed to us. Uh, in these next few moments, in Jesus' name. In the city of Chicago, one cold, dark night, a blizzard was setting in. A little boy was selling newspapers on the corner, and the people were in and out of the cold. The little boy was so cold that that he wasn't even trying to sell many newspapers. He walked up to the local policeman and said, Mister, you wouldn't happen to know where a poor boy like me can find a warm place to sleep tonight, would you? You see, I sleep in a box up around the corner there and down the alley and it's awful cold in there tonight. Sure would be nice to have a warm place to stay. The policeman looked down at the little boy and said, you go to the street, to the end of that next street, to that big white house and knock on the door. When they come out the door, you just simply say, John 3.16, and they will let you in. So he did. He walked up the steps and knocked on the door and a lady answered. He looked up and said, John 3.16. The lady said, come on in, son. She took him in and sat him down in a split bottom rocker in front of a great big old fireplace. And then she went off. The boy sat there for a while and thought to himself, John 3.16, I don't understand it, but it sure makes a cold boy warm. Later she came back and asked him, are you hungry, son? He said, well, just a little. I haven't eaten in a couple of days. I guess I could stand a little bit of food. Lady took him into the kitchen and sat him down to a table full of wonderful food. He ate and ate until he couldn't eat any more. Then he thought to himself, John 3.16, boy, I sure don't understand it, but it sure makes a hungry boy full. She took him upstairs to a bathroom, to a huge bathtub filled with soapy warm water. And he sat there and soaked for a while. As he soaked, he thought to himself, John 3.16, I sure don't understand it, but it sure makes a dirty boy clean. 
You know, I've not had a bath, a real bath in my whole life. The only bath I ever had was when I stood in front of that big old fire hydrant as they flushed it out. The lady came in and got him. She took him to a room and tucked him into the big old feather bed, pulled the covers up around his neck, kissed him goodnight and turned out the lights. As he lay in the darkness and looked out the window at the snow coming down on that cold night, he thought to himself, John 3.16, I don't understand it, but it sure makes a tired little boy rested. The next morning, the lady came back and took him down again to that same big table of food. After he ate, she took him to that big old split bottom rocker in front of the fireplace and picked up a big old Bible. She sat down in front of him and looked into his young face. Do you understand John 3.16? She asked gently. He replied, no, ma'am, I don't. The first time I ever heard it was last night when the policeman told me to use it. She opened the Bible to John 3.16 and began to explain to him about Jesus. Right there in front of that old fireplace, he trusted Jesus as saviour. He sat there and thought, John 3.16, I now understand it. And it sure makes a lost boy safe. The point of that story is that John 3.16 is a central text in the Bible, probably the most well-known in all of the scriptures. But perhaps today, as you sit there, it may be a little bit foreign. And the goal this morning is literally word by word to explain what John 3.16 is for us. If you are a Christian today, you will rejoice in this. If you are not, I hope that you understand what this means for us Today, So in your Bibles, or if you don't have one looking up the front, these are the words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We're going to look at a number of points and each of them are something great. And the very first thing is for God. I want you to see this morning the greatest lover. The greatest lover. It's really important that as we are confronted with the pages of scripture this morning, as we are confronted with this central verse that speaks about the good news of Jesus Christ, we need to understand something here. That when it speaks of God, it's not a God that you formed in your own imagination. It's not a God that you have conjured up or even your perspective of God is irrelevant at this point. It is the God of love who is the greatest lover in all of the world. What do I mean by that? I mean by that. This morning, our love is fickle. Our love is uh, used to changing. We have a love that is based upon the recipient's worthiness. We say, I love that person because they please me. Or it's a selfish love for the most part. We need to understand that that's not how God's love works. God's love is not a selfish love in that if we don't uh, do what he wants us to do, he will stop loving us. That's not the love of God. The love of God is unchanging and it is full in every sense of the word. And it is not based upon what we do or do not do. It's not based upon our behavior or our attitude or how well we follow the rules. His love is perfect. It is constant and it is full. In fact, the Bible tells us in other places in 1 John 4 and verse 10, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a big word, the propitiation, the satisfaction for sin. By this, we know that he loves us. He laid down his life for us. I have no doubt that with this group of people, 
All of us being unique and individual from all different walks of life, nationalities, uh, places that you've come from, that there are many people here perhaps who have experienced the hurt associated with someone who says they love us. Many of us understand that reality and love does hurt. We love someone and they hurt us. And, And the reality of that situation is that that is not the kind of love that we are talking about here. We're talking about a love that transcends humanity. It is a love that is only found fully in the nature of God. None of us have the fullness of this love. As Christians, the Bible tells us that we have this love given to us. But it's not our love. It is the love of God. And so when the Bible says for God, we need to remember who this God is. This is not just some God of our imagination. This is the God who created you, who knows how many hairs are upon your head, who knows everything about you, all the intents of your heart. There's not a thing that is hidden from his sight. In fact, the Bible says we are naked before him, so to speak. Not a part of our character is withheld from his all-seeing eyes. And yet he loves us. Us. I remember hearing the illustration that if there were a way that we could plug in a cable today and connect it to the projector and view what you and I have uh, thought about for the last 24 hours, it would be a horror movie, if we're honest. It would be horrific. The things that go through our head and our hearts, and yet the Lord sees all of that and his love is undiminished towards us. That is incredible. That is a love beyond our comprehension. And this is God, the greatest lover. And then I want you to see the Bible says, for God so loved. Not only the greatest lover, but the greatest degree. Look at that word, so. For God so loved. When we look at our human love, we're able to quantify it. We're able to measure it to some degree. For example, you may love a friend of yours and give them $100 out of your wallet because they're in need. But very likely you will not sell your house and give all that money to them. We quantify our love to some degree. You may love your dog. Now, I hope I don't offend anybody here. You may love your dog, but you're probably not going to cook them a roast turkey for lunch today. If you are, I'm not sure what to say to you. But... Quantifying our love is easy to determine because this is what I'm prepared to do. I'm not prepared to go any further than this. We have a quantifiable love. God and his love cannot be fully comprehended. It is beyond our quantifiable nature. It's beyond our apprehension of this love. He is not subject to gradations or degrees. In fact, the Bible says God is love. You see, the love we're speaking of is far greater than anything we experience in the world. This is a love that's only found in God. And so great is this love. So divine and full is this love. That everything else comes from it in the rest of this text. The greatest degree of love. Look at what the scripture says. For God so loved where? What? The world, the world. Here we see the greatest number, the greatest lover, the greatest degree of love. And now the greatest number, the world, the world. And we're not talking about the land and the seas. We're talking about the people of the earth. God loves the world. 
There is not a special kind of people in whom God loves and he doesn't love these. The Bible says he loves the world. He loves the world. The Bible makes it clear that God has loved everybody who ever lived. He loves everyone who is currently living and everyone who will one day live. Nobody escapes the love of God. You say, I want proof of that reality. Let me give you some. We're not going to turn to them, but let me give you some biblical examples of God's love as seen in the person of Jesus Christ. How about this? A woman of ill repute, a prostitute in Luke 7.36. The Lord Jesus doesn't turn her away. In fact, he welcomes her and he loves her and he speaks with her, which was against every custom of the day. So great was the love of God. How about the thieves and the tax collectors? Instead of shunning them like the Jewish society would, he welcomes them and even calls Levi, Matthew, a disciple who was a tax collector, to join his group of disciples. The Samaritans in that day were a combination of Jews and Assyrians. They were called half-breeds and they were shunned by the Jews of that day. What does the Lord Jesus do? He intentionally, in John chapter 4, the next chapter, goes to Samaria to wait for a particular woman at the well who is a Samaritan. And he doesn't just, as soon as he see her, disappear because he should have nothing to do with her. He spends time with her. He reveals who he is to her and then ministers for two whole days in Samaria to those people. God, in the form of Jesus Christ, loves people. The sick and the diseased. What about the demon-possessed, unstable, nudist man of Mark chapter 5? Most of us would have nothing to do with this man. Most of us would have rocked up at that island when the Lord Jesus comes across the other side and see this man who is nude, completely naked, cutting himself with stones, crying out with a loud voice, clearly out of his mind, mentally unstable. We probably would have said, all right, children, let's go. Let's get out of here. The Lord Jesus walks up to that man with all the power and authority of the Godhead and rescues that sinner. And then a few verses later, we find that man is sitting down clothed and in his right mind. What a difference Jesus makes. But he cared for those people, the poor and the needy, the upper class and the wealthy, the religious elite, the divorced. You may be divorced here. The Lord cares for you. He cared for the divorced in this day. The handicapped. You may be blind, lame, unable to do things that other people can do. God cares for you. The children. Remember the disciples said, let's get the children out of here. The Lord Jesus says, let the children come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. I want to spend time investing in the children. How about this? Of all of these people, from the beginning, the Lord Jesus, knowing all things while he was on earth as God in human flesh, he knows full well who Judas Iscariot is. He knows full well. From the beginning, and yet he still chooses him to be a part of the 12 disciples and then even knows when he's walking towards him to kiss him on the cheek as the traitor. The Lord Jesus knew that and yet still he loved Judas Iscariot. That's a kind of love that we don't see in the world. That's a kind of love that is unique to the character of our God. And so, friends, this morning, you are not outside of the love of God. You say, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the difficulties in my life. You don't know the struggles that I have, the addictions, the private sins, all the things that are going on in my life. You don't know them. You're right, I don't, but God does, and yet he still loves you. What an amazing love that is. The greatest number, the world. Then he says, for God so loved the world 
that he gave. Here we see the greatest act. The greatest act in all of history, in all of humanity, is before us here. And you know what's interesting? Love in its truest form is a verb. It's a doing word. It's not an emotion. It's not just a feeling that is conjured up within us. It's not lust. It's a doing word. And we see that love in its truest form does something. It gives. Not takes. It gives. This is the creator. This is the sustainer we're speaking of. The God who is in need of none of us. Don't for a moment think as we talk about the love of God that there must be something amazing about me that God would love me. Not so at all. The amazing thing is that God loves you. The amazing thing is that God loves me. He knows the sin of my heart. He knows the wickedness of my character. And in spite of that, he loves me. And he gives. And he gives. And he gives. You know, don't think for a moment that God was lonely up there. We like to put God in a box. You know, God must have been lonely in eternity past. You know, he's eternal. He's forever. He must have been lonely and thought, boy, I really want some company. I'm, I'm going to make some people. Let's make some people. That'll make me feel a bit better. There's people around. God didn't need us. God didn't create us because he was lonely. God created us so that we would glorify in him, so that we would be his people. It's really important that we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. It's an incredible reality that God, who needs nobody, he doesn't need you, he doesn't need me, loves you in spite of you and gave and gave. What an incredible reality, the greatest act. And what was that act? What was that gift? The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this is the greatest gift, the greatest Gift. We all love gifts. I saw the excitement on your faces when I started handing, handing out Easter eggs. Don't pretend I saw it on your faces. Suddenly they all lit up. Well, this is going to be a great church service, free Easter eggs. Uh, we love gifts. We love, we love receiving. This is the greatest gift in all the world. I think it's amazing that few of us recognize the enormity of God's gift to mankind. We sit here... Most of us perhaps even unaware of just how great this gift is. This isn't just another day that we're talking about, some other event that happened way back there. You know, it has no relevance for me. This is the greatest gift in all of history that we're talking about this morning. God the Father gave the Son to be the Saviour of the world. You say, well, who was this person, Jesus well, let's remember for a moment that Jesus, before he came to earth as a man, he took on human flesh. He was in the Father's presence for all eternity in the past, in majesty and glory with his heavenly Father. We've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. They existed way, way before the Lord Jesus came to earth. He had all that glory with him. And then listen to what happened. He was born in a mean stable in Bethlehem. The king of glory comes down as a baby boy in a stable. If anything, he should have been born in a, in a palace. He should have been born with, with servants around him, but instead he was born around cattle. He was trained in a carpenter's shop. The everyday job of the day, a carpenter's shop. He was raised in a humble home, no riches or wealth. 
to boast in. He was rejected by the religious leaders of the day. His own hometown pushed him out of that countryside. He had no comforts or luxury throughout his ministry. He was betrayed by his own disciple that he'd spent three and a half years with. He was denied by one of his closest friends. He was scourged in the most horrific type of torture in history. The cat of nine tails. This is nine strands of whip. On the end of each is a piece of bone, glass or metal that would tear away at the flesh. One of the most horrific persecutions of the day. And then mounted on a cross as a criminal before the world, hung before heaven and earth, before all the people, innocent, the king of heaven. Scorned and rejected by those who walk past. And then, if that wasn't enough, buried in a borrowed tomb. No earthly possessions of any kind. The greatest gift. Why would a man do that? Why would someone offer himself in such a way if this were not truly him? If this were truly not the son of God? He endured all of this because of his love for you. Because he wanted you to recognize who he is and to realize that there is a way for sin to be forgiven. There is a hope of eternity. There is a life after this and you can be assured of it by trusting in this precious gift. He experienced all of this torment for one reason and that was to rescue you from sin and to give you the hope of eternal life. I realize everything I'm saying is not a popular message I'm not looking for popularity polls, though I'm looking for the truth of God's word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now look at what it says. This is amazing. That whoever, whoever, the greatest invitation, the greatest invitation is before you this morning. The greatest news that you will have ever heard in your life is again before you. And that is that you are invited. You are invited to trust In this son to place your faith and hope in the work that Jesus did on the cross for you. The greatest invitation. How special, how amazing would it be if you go home this afternoon or tomorrow, not tomorrow because there's no post, Tuesday. And you open a letter that's all uh, covered in gold outside and you open it up and you find in there is an invitation to the Queen's Palace at Buckingham. So you're going to dinner at the Queen's Palace I think you'd go out and buy a new suit, probably do some weights if it was me, lose a bit of weight, try and look the part. And uh, boy, that's exciting. Uh, The the fares are paid for. Let's go in there. I'm going to meet the queen and dine with the queen. Some of you say, I don't want to sit with that lady. But concept of the monarchy, of the majesty that's there. That would be an amazing thought. How much greater? How much surpassing is the invitation from the king of kings and the lord of lords the one who created you who says come to me come to me you who are heavy burdened who have great pains and sorrows and are wrestling with this sin come to me and i will take care of it what an invitation to dine at the table of the king of kings and you know what today a decision will be made 
Every single person in this room will make a decision. The decision will either be, yes, I will accept that invitation and come, or no, I will not. And those of us who are saved are praying that God would open your eyes to believe this truth, that you would take upon yourself this invitation and accept it and trust in what the Bible says. Whoever, whoever, doesn't matter where you've come from, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what your plans were to do, All are included in this invitation. And then we see that whoever believes, believes. The greatest simplicity. The greatest simplicity. Becoming a Christian, understanding that your sins are forgiven, is one of the simplest transactions possible. It is simply by faith, trusting that Jesus is who he said he was, that he died and that he rose again on the third day for you. You say, that sounds simple enough. Why don't so many people do it? Well, because when we say that we believe that, we are saying, Lord Jesus, you are in control. You are the one to whom I now turn. My life is yours. You bought me, therefore I am yours. Most of us are unwilling to allow God to be in control of our lives. Most of us are unwilling to repent and say, you know what, the sin which I love, the things that I want to do, I'm going to turn from that in order to follow Jesus Christ. The greatest simplicity, believe, trust. Believe in what? Believe in him. In him, the greatest person. The greatest person. Let me just say to us this morning, knowledge and belief are very different You may well be able to sit here and say, I know this crucifixion story. I know what some of these plaques are referring to. I know what the the grave was and I know that Jesus rose. Knowing is not enough. Knowing facts and information is not the same as total dependence upon it for my own salvation. Knowing that Jesus died didn't save anybody. Knowing that Jesus rose again didn't save anybody. It is believing by faith in my inner man, my heart, the internals, and knowing for sure that my only hope is fixed in him. Only he can save me from my sin. That's the difference between knowledge and belief. Most people know so many things about Jesus. God's invitation is not to know about him, but to exercise total faith in him. Let's continue. Believe in him should not perish. We're almost through. The greatest deliverance. The question we have to ask is, why, would I, why do I want Jesus? Why do I even want to know anything? Why does it matter that this Jew some 2,000 years ago died on a cross and rose again? Okay, that's a nice story. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because of why he came. He came to deliver us from our sin. The Bible makes it clear that every single person in this room, without distinction, all have sinned and fall short of God's standard of perfection. Not one of us have hit the mark. It's like playing darts. We throw the dart against the wall. And unless you get a bullseye every single time, you have not hit the mark of perfection. If you have sinned once, you have missed the mark. And every one of us is born with a sin nature we don't even have a chance to start with. God says that you have missed the mark and the only way that a holy and a righteous God could ever save a person is to send a perfect one in their place. 
You see, it doesn't matter how many good things I try and do. It doesn't matter how many good deeds I do. It doesn't matter how many times I attend church. It doesn't matter how much I read my Bible. None of that is going to bring about the cleansing that I need because I'm sinful. And so God said, you can't do it. I will send my son who is perfect, who never sinned, who never did anything wrong to be your substitute. Here's what he will do. He will come and be born amongst you as a man. He will grow up perfect without sin in any account. And he will die on that cross for your sin and for my sin. And he will then give to you his righteousness, all the goodness about him. He will give to you so that you can stand right before God. That's the message of the gospel. But failure to believe that message will result In you perishing in your sin. You know, the Bible says that God wants all to be saved in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. But sin cannot be overlooked. God is just. He is right. He will not overlook sin. He cannot. It's his nature to be just and to be righteous. The only way to rescue the sinner is to send his son in the likeness of mankind to die as our substitute. What a sacrifice. What a gift for you, for me, worthless people. Such was the love of God. But friends, let me say this to us this morning. At the risk of sounding like a hellfire brimstone preacher. Failure to accept the invitation will result in you dying in your sin. That is not God's desire. That is not part of God's love towards you in that. God's love towards you is that you would accept the invitation. But God's justice demands sin must be paid for. It is not God's desire to cast you into that place of eternal torment. But it is inevitable if you reject the invitation that he has made. He has provided a cure. The choice is whether or not you will accept it. Do not delay. Judgment is coming, the Bible says. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have. This is the greatest certainty. But have. There's a contrast here. But those who do not perish, they will have something else. And that have is an assurance. It's a certainty. You can take this to the bank spiritually, so to speak. This is absolutely sure because God said it. Instead of perishing, you will have a promise, a certainty. It's not all doom and gloom. Those who will accept God's invitation to be saved from their sin are issued with an irreversible promise. If you follow in the way that God says, accept his invitation to believe, to repent of your sin, to trust in Christ, then you have a certain guarantee. Absolutely guaranteed. It is as fixed as the character of God. You say, what happens if I sin after I become a Christian? You can never lose your salvation. That salvation is fixed and firm if it's the real deal. Doesn't mean that you can continually go ahead and do whatever you want. But it means that when we sin, I sin every day of my life. I'm sure. But I confess and deal with that before the Lord. Don't have to be saved again. I have salvation because of what he's done. It is an incredible certainty. And then let's, let's look at the last two words. But have eternal life. This is the greatest possession. 
the greatest possession. We are filled in our culture with the pursuit of wealth, with the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of education or properties or entertainment or some other form of media or personal pursuits. All of this pales into insignificance when it comes to this acquisition of eternal life. This is beyond this life. If you die at this instant, you can take none of the rest of it with you. But if you die at this instant, having eternal life, you will enter into the next life as one of God's children, the Bible says. Eternal life is exclusively the possession of those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and accepted his invitation. Notice what one of the Bible verses says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But in another place it says, for the wages, the reward of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let me close with just a couple of comments as we finish this morning. Here's the question. How then, based upon this incredible truth in the Bible, how can I obtain eternal life? Well, first of all, I have to acknowledge that I've sinned against a holy and a righteous God. I've offended a God who is holy, who is just, and I deserve the punishment of hell forever and ever because I have broken his holy law. I deserve that. I must recognize, I must not think of myself in some highfalutin way. I am at best a sinner. I must recognize that. Secondly, I must place my faith and trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who came to set me free from that sin and punishment. And then I must turn from my pursuit of all that I want to do and all the things that, uh, that my heart wants to achieve in my own mind and give myself wholly to the Lord. Here's what happens. A lot of people go, I don't want to become a Christian. I'm going to be bored the rest of my life. I'm going to have to do all this stuff that I don't want to do. Let me tell you, I am having the greatest life. It is an adventure. It is the greatest thing to be a Christian. There is nothing like it in all the world. The joys that are felt, the struggles that are had, the battles that are there, and the whole of life is a totally different place as a Christian through the eyes of Christ. It's not some sort of far out, I've got to follow all the rules and the rituals and I've seen these people, these monks, they look like they're, you know, they're some sort of depressed people and, and that's not Christianity at all. Christianity is a new life, it's a vibrant life, it's a changed life and the joy of it is that I know, I know that my sins are forgiven and I will be in heaven with God one day. Let me say to us this morning, do not delay. Some have said I will come to God later. Some have said, ah, let me just go and do this or that first. And in their procrastination, they have died and embarked upon an eternity without God. Some years ago, I came across this little illustration. Some of you might have heard of Harry Truman. He came to brief fame as a resident of the U.S. state of Washington, who lived near Mount St. Helens, the volcano, and died in its 1980 eruption after stubbornly, stubbornly refusing to leave. He became a minor celebrity during the two months of volcanic activity preceding the eruption, giving interviews to reporters and expressing opinion that the danger from the volcano was over-exaggerated. Harry seemed to shrug off all concerns about St Helens and his situation, at one point stating, if the mountain goes, I'm going with it. Indeed, he died. 
in the blast, along with 56 other people. His body was never found. He was born, ironically, in a place called Wise, Virginia, but he died unwise because he chose to remain in the place of grave danger and suffered the consequences. Same is true for us today, folks. There is grave danger. There is the need to move towards God. I beg you, do not wait for the volcanic judgment of God. Escape now whilst you have the chance. Embrace the love of God and the forgiveness that is available. If you wait until judgment day, you will have waited too long. Trust in Christ and come to his cross today, confessing your sinfulness, trusting in his work on your behalf. Do not shrug off this grave warning. Come to Christ and be saved. As we close, let me just remind you that at the end of the service, while people are getting things organised, I will be up the front here available to talk to. If you have questions, you have things you want me to pray for, you want to ask me questions about what the scripture says, I want to be available to do that. And Christian this morning, for us, church, regular attendees, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Doesn't that mean so much more to us who have experienced it? That we should not perish, but have eternal life. Uh, Are we living in the joy of that reality, Christian? We have eternal life, not because of who we are, but because of the love of God for us. Wow. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for uh, the great attention and concentration from uh, the people here, Lord. Uh, I know that this is heavy. I know that this is hard. But I pray, Lord, that uh, the message that is seen in this incredible verse of scripture would penetrate to our hearts that lord not a person would leave today without recognizing what it is to have sins forgiven oh lord thank you thank you so much that we can celebrate not just today with a world that doesn't know much about it but every day the truth of the lord jesus who is risen again who died was buried and then rose again ascended and is coming back And oh, how we long and look forward to the day when we shall see him face to face. Embrace the one who loved us so much that he would die. We thank you for this time in your word in Jesus' name.